Libby. And I'm Farron. And this is the tip of the iceberg. I have often felt like abusers must be graduates of some kind of abuser of cattle. Welcome back to the tip of the iceberg. This is probably going to be literally my favorite episode of the podcast that we've ever done. I'm not joking at all. Yeah. I'm thrilled. She's been... I did not sleep last night, which is embarrassing to admit, but I really didn't because (laughs) (laughs) personal hero and domestic violence expert Lundy Bancroft is literally in the room right now. Hello, everybody. (laughs) He's right here, and I'm so happy that he, that we carved out some time that he could be on the podcast because we're just thrilled about it. Yeah, we have, um, I started working at SAFE seven years ago. This is Farron. Started working at SAFE seven years ago and was immediately given a stack of books that you wrote. (laughs) <laughs> read these this will explain batterers um and so we've had them in our office given them to clients mm-hmm. i've had so many clients come to me and who'd stayed up all night their first night in shelter highlighting page after page of your book and saying especially why does he do that oh my gosh this is this all makes so much sense so it's an it's really an honor to have you here it's really really cool yeah, especially and so when i was first went to school and i was first starting my love affair with domestic violence work, one of the very first things I did was a research project on batterers because it was, we talk about victims and survivors all the time and we very infrequently talk about batterers. And so my project was like, I'm gonna really dig into this and I'm gonna figure out the batterer. And I was just a a baby, honestly, just really at the beginning of my learning. And I stumbled on so much from Lundy Bancroft and ever since then I've, I've just like considered him the expert in my head. So this is, I'm fangirling just a little bit here. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. So I'll try not to stumble over my words as we speak to him, but we're going to have a good discussion. And I want you to introduce yourself, too, after our introductions of our obsession with you. (laughs) Now you're super uncomfortable. Yes, perfect. (laughs) So I started working in domestic violence a little over 30 years ago now. It's been a long time. And the lion's share of my direct service work was with the offenders, with, with men who batter. And I started in Cambridge, Massachusetts in a program called Emerge that was actually the first program in the country that was specifically dedicated to working with abusive men. I was not one of the founders of it. I've often gotten credit. Oh, and here's Lundy. He's one of the co-founders of Emerge, but I'm not. It had already been going almost a decade by the time I got there. And I think one of the, one of the most important things about that program was that we insisted on speaking with the woman for each of the guys that we were counseling. Confidential conversation, he wouldn't know what she said to us, but we weren't willing to work with a guy unless we could get the real deal on what he was like because abusive men are so unreliable, completely unreliable Mm. in their own accounts of what they've done. Completely unreliable in their descriptions of what the woman is like, completely unreliable often in just even discussing their own thoughts and feelings. They're, they're not an honest or accurate bunch. And so I got so much of my education about domestic violence from working with the abusers directly while also knowing what the real story was. So it's not just from hearing what he says, but it's from knowing the difference between what he's saying and how things really are. And it's about seeing his ability to distort and change things so that they become completely unrecognizable from what actually happened. 
And so I led groups for abusers for, I guess, about 15 years. I worked with over a thousand abusers directly in my in the groups that I led. And then I was a supervisor for a few years of other batterer counselors and was involved in about another thousand cases as a supervisor. So I've been involved in about 2,000 cases. And the uh, that experience, I rolled up into a big ball a lot and to write the book, Why Does He Do That? And that same year, coincidentally, I, I got uh, the opportunity to write another book called The Batterer as Parent. So I went from writing no books to writing my first two in the same year. And the, I've had a lot of women say, oh, you must have been in my house after they read the book. And oh, you must have been a fly on the wall because this is exactly what happens. And it's nothing magical about it. It's just from having heard so many of these accounts and and really understanding how my clients behave. And then writing the books led me to more and more become a trainer and public speaker. And I start, I phased out of working with abusers directly. And then the other main point about who I am is that I'm someone who became really aware that my clients were not just being destructive to the women that they were involved with, but they were being really destructive to kids who were exposed to them, their partners, children, whether he was the father of those kids or not. And so I started to focus more and more in my work on how kids were being harmed when their dad or stepdad is an abuser. And that I let, I've written a couple other books that focus more on that question, and and that became probably the main focus of my training work. I think I'm most often asked to speak about what's going on for the kids and what's going on for the woman as a mother, in other words, specifically in her role as mom. Yeah. So to say that you are an expert is uh, is very fair, <laughs> based on your extensive work in caseload. Like that's very impressive. I like to think of my myself as an expert on domestic violence. I think I am the the. Why does he do that? Is the largest selling book in history on domestic violence. But one thing that it might be useful for your listeners to know is that people very commonly have a misconception that the experts on domestic violence are psychologists, and uh, psychologists generally, believe it or not, don't have any training on domestic violence, usually haven't done any research on domestic violence, haven't usually read any books in the field. That's not a criticism of psychologists. It's just not considered part of what psychology is about. And so domestic violence is a field much more, you might compare it to a field like substance abuse, where the only way to really be an expert on substance abuse is to be from the substance abuse field. And the domestic violence is the same way. It's something judges often misunderstand. For example, judges are often much more likely to listen to a PhD psychologist than to listen to a professional who's worked in domestic violence for 15 or 20 or more years. And that's really unfortunate because those are the folks that have the expertise on domestic violence are the folks who've been doing the work. I think it's really interesting to talk to you because we have worked with so many survivors of domestic violence um, but I, Livy and I were just talking about this yesterday. I've never been able to get into an abuser's head by having a sit. I mean, we don't do batterer intervention and, and things like that. And so it's, it's really important in helping do advocacy with someone to understand um, the abuser as well. And I think that one thing that you have said today earlier when we were talking that I felt really validated about and that I've said a lot is that among all of these, all of the hundreds of women that I've worked with, 
their abusers are so eerily similar to mm-hmm. one another. Yeah. I, I forget if I said this in why does he do that or not, but I have often felt like abusers must be graduates of some kind of abuser academy mm-hmm. because they're just so similar in their in their tactics, their excuses, how they get away with it, how they fool other people, how they recruit allies. Mm-hmm. And uh, what you just said also reminds me of another important point, which is that you don't see what an abuser is like generally unless you're either involved with him yourself or you're in a position of confronting him quite forcefully about how he has treated his partner. Mm-hmm. And so you don't really learn what abusers are like even from being around abusers Mm -hmm. unless you're doing it in a context where they're being called out. And I think why those of us in batter intervention learned so much about what abusers are like is because we were challenging them. Mm -hmm. We were demanding that they look at what they did. We weren't buying their excuses. We We were rejecting their excuses. We were advocating for their victims. And that's when the guy will start to show his true colors. It's what he blurts out. Not... That really matters, not his carefully planned mm-hmm. statements. And that's where you start to get how his mind really works. Right. Wow. I just think that's really interesting. Yeah. And it feels validating that I've told so many survivors that they're, these men are very similar. Yeah, and I know we've talked about it too. That just in my experience. Very, I don't want to say never because, you know, there are some like really, really freaky things that pop up. But very frequently it's like... We just don't get surprised a lot based on what abusers are doing or how they're doing it or what's being said. We're like, oh, yeah, classic. Page Mm -hmm. 36 of the abuser handbook. (laughs) But this stuff doesn't show early in a relationship. And this is one of the things that that abused women get so blamed for, whether it's by their own friends and relatives Mm -hmm. or by police and courts. Like, well, people will say to him, well, you got involved with the guy. And she got involved with a guy who seemed nothing. Right. Like the abuser he turned out to be. And when I talk about how he doesn't show his true colors until he's challenged in the counseling program, well, that's also true in the context of a relationship. He can be lovely in a relationship until the first time she stands up to him about something or the first time she doesn't do what he is telling her to do. It's Until he's challenged, he's rarely going to show his, his real abusive qualities. And by the time he's starting to show those things... She is really generally deep into the relationship. He keeps that stuff hidden for a long time. So it doesn't make any sense to blame a woman and say, well, you chose him. So she didn't choose him. She chose something so different mm-hmm. from what he turned out to be. And, and he built in, he gradually built into this over time. That's how virtually every abuser operates in a relationship. There's not some way that she should have known it was coming, like that kind of comment that people make. It's just not so. And there's nothing that she can really do, which is a big a big misconception that victims of domestic violence have, is there's something wrong with me. There's yeah. something about me that triggers him. There's something about me that upsets him. If I were better, if I were different, if if I were more patient, I think that's really interesting that you've said, like, that's not... No. And it's worth noticing that people's solutions for her, friends, relatives, police, courts, again, that whole list that I just gave, their solutions for her typically are two things, that she should stand up to him more and that she should stand up to him less. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. just impossibly contradictory information. Neither yeah. of them will work, by the way. Right. But people will tell her, 
uh, well, you just let him get away with that, or you just took that from him, or you just sat there and didn't do anything. I, I would never put up with that from a guy. I would never let a guy treat me that way. So that's all these comments on the, like, you should stand up to him more side. And then people, sometimes the same people, uh, sometimes other people will say the opposite. Say, well, you knew that was going to make him really mad and you did it anyhow. Or he'd gotten really uh, mean or scary before when you didn't do what you were, what he told you to do. You should have done what he told you to do. Or uh, you really know how to push his buttons. Or well, you couldn't possibly be scared of him. I've seen you like challenge him so directly sometimes. So, so which is it? Is she supposed to stand up to him more or is she supposed to stand up to him less? And so that's, first of all, I would like our people to become aware of the fact that we're doing that, that, mm -hmm. we're, that we're giving abused women these absolutely opposite pieces of advice. And, but what I also want people to know is that neither of these will work. Standing up to him less doesn't make things any better, and standing up to him more doesn't make things any better, because it's all about him. Mm -hmm. It's all about him. And there's nothing she can do that's going to make his behavior better. I really felt, sorry I'm hijacking this. No, it's okay. So we had a round table with Lundy this morning with some of our clients, which was awesome. And one of the things, one of the first things you said was that the more that an abuser cares or the more investment they have in a relationship, the more abusive they are or the more likely they are to be abusive. And I find that really interesting and I've never thought about that Me before. Neither. Because I think mm -hmm. a lot of times your your thought is he doesn't, he doesn't care about me he doesn't care about her he doesn't you know and that's what a lot of mm -hmm. survivors feel is he doesn't love me um he doesn't care about me so i think it'd be really interesting to speak more to that because i find that fascinating well and it rang true to me when you said that i was like oh this makes perfect sense because yeah, that's, that's what i really think about it. teeth in is like right. absolutely please mm -hmm. so f first of all we're, we're talking about different meanings of words to different people. When you talk about love or caring, or his partner talks about love or caring, mm -hmm. those terms mean different things to you or to her mm -hmm. than they mean to the abuser. When he's describing, oh, I love you so much, that's the emotion that he has that he calls love is about the desire to have a personal servant. Mm. That's what feels like love to him is I oh mm. I so badly want you to be everything for me, do everything for me, give everything up for me, and have no needs so that only I can have needs, obey me. That's what unfortunately that's what love means to him. Okay. And so that's why I was maybe not what I was saying this morning, well, maybe we don't necessarily even want to use the term caring or love when we're talking about the abuser, but why I was talking about that term that you were quoting me on about the term investment, right. that the more invested he is in a relationship. Because it's true in a sense that he doesn't care the way that term, what that would mean to you or me. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, to, to his mind, he cares a lot. And he'll say, oh, I do these things because I love her so much. It's like, no, that not by your meaning of not by most people's definition of love. Right. Yeah, he's got a very, very twisted notion of what love is all about. What he means is I do these things because I'm so attached to having her serve me and do everything for me. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about attachment, or he's really talking about investment. I'm so invested in having her be my perfect everything, and and I, I don't know a better term than my personal servant. Right. Uh, some people, I think, have a... a 
have this view of personal service that's very focused on like washing the dishes and cooking the meals and cleaning the house and doing his laundry. And that's important, but it's also a little bit of a stereotype because the batterer, particularly the modern batterer, is wants even a more total kind of service than that. Mm -hmm. He wants to be completely served sexually, all his needs met. He wants to be completely served emotionally. Like she has to listen to him and take care of him and build up his wounded ego. And if he's had a bad day, she's supposed to drop everything that is important to her and just totally focus on what would make him feel better. And unfortunately, a lot of community members will go along with that. A lot of, sometimes her own friends and relatives. I've seen police officers make this mistake. I've seen church members make this mistake. They'll start to say, well, but he was really upset and you you know, you should have just dropped what you were doing and focused on what he needed at those points. And that's wrong. Mm -hmm. This is a relationship. This is give and take. It's not supposed to be about her doing everything for him all the time. And then what I think in certain ways is even more important is when you when a batterer is frustrated or disappointed, he's not just frustrated or disappointed. He's out to punish. He's mm -hmm. going to get you back for that. And so domestic violence, to a huge extent, is about enforcement. In mm -hmm. some ways, I think that's the core principle of domestic violence, is enforcement. Because, yes, the abuser does have a very unreasonable set of demands, a very unreasonable set of expectations, but what's even more significant than that is that he believes in his right to enforce that unreasonable mm -hmm. set of demands. He believes in his right to enforce that set of very unreasonable expectations. In other words, if you don't do the things he's demanding that you do, he's gonna hurt you. And he's not necessarily gonna hurt you physically. In fact, more often he's gonna hurt you emotionally. The, but sometimes also he may hurt you physically. That's sort of what defines a domestic violence perpetrator. But the punishments much more commonly are gonna be other ways of making her have a very painful, awful, miserable day ruining plans that she had, taking things away from her that really mattered to her, destroying her relationships with people, all these other kinds of punishments. It doesn't make any sense to say to her, well, the, the solution is that you should cater to him more. And that's a response, unfortunately, that, for example, she will often get from her church is, well, you should, ca you should cater to him more and that would make things go better. That's like saying, well, you've already given 90% of your life to this man, you should be giving 100%. That's terrible advice. Mm -hmm. Like, well, what happens to her life? What happens to her needs, to her ambitions? Why isn't it in any way about what he should be doing for her? So uh, I, I'd really like to see us stop telling anyone that the solution to being abused is that you should be doing even more for the abuser than you're already doing. Yeah, that makes total sense. I, I, I like when you say that it's like saying you're already giving 90% of your life now just go ahead and give a hundred and then all the problems will stop. Because when you say it like that, it's so rational. Like, of course it's not going to change anything. For some batterers, if she completely erases herself, he will stop his violence. Is that somehow a success? <laughs> right. And many batterers, even if she does completely erase herself, that still mm -hmm. won't stop the violence. But either way, she gets erased. Right. So why would we want to recommend to somebody to do that? Yeah. When we're talking about what we recommend survivors or people who are in currently in domestic violence relationships to do, I know Farron and I have spoken a lot about this, but a very frequent thing is, why doesn't she just leave? Why don't they just leave? Um, that's kind of a hot button topic for us. I wanted to get your input. Well, and it's it, it happens that my 
past 15 years really of my career, what I have specialized in is post-separation issues in domestic violence. And people's reaction to that term is often surprised. Like, what do you mean post-separation issues in domestic violence? Domestic violence is what ha- about what happens when a couple's together. Like, how can there be post-separation issues in domestic violence? Well, the abuser is still who he is. He hasn't become someone different because they've broken up. In fact, typically he's become someone worse. Mm-hmm because they've broken up. Abusers do not take well to being left. Think about this guy, you know, that I've just described, and then, well, how is this guy gonna react, who has all these qualities that I've just told you about, to a woman deciding she doesn't wanna be with him? He's enraged, he wants to get her back, he wants to prove that she owed him even more than she gave him. I mean, he's, he, if anything, escalates. He's, he, the problem doesn't go away. And so he looks for what can how can he get at her he's not involved with her daily anymore so how can he get at her well one way he can get at her is to stalk her and there's quite there's a lot of stalking by abusers very hard unfortunately to get to get uh, officials to take that stalking seriously uh, the woman is often accused of exaggerating when she describes the way she's being stalked another thing that he can do is try to destroy her financially and destroy her reputation in town and a lot of abusers put a lot of their energy into that direction and the other way that he can get her is through the kids Mm-hmm. And women are having a terrible time in our era with all the ways that abusers are doing huge psychological harm to kids mm-hmm. as a way to get at her post-separation. Uh, we have big frustrations with child protective systems across the continent mm-hmm. who think that somehow if she would just leave the abuser, conditions would necessarily and automatically get better for her children. Mm-hmm. and. A lot of times conditions get worse for her children after she leaves the abuser because suddenly he's alone with them all the time now and she doesn't have any way to prevent that. The court won't let her yeah. prevent that. The court forbids a woman from protecting her children. It, it, while she's with him, the, the system, the child protective system and the legal system tell her, you must protect your children, you must protect your children. And then after she leaves him, they say, oh, never mind, we're taking it back. You're actually not allowed to protect your children. You must send them to him. Well, and I think... I, I think we see this a little bit, I think, and nationwide as well. I don't think it's emotional abuse or the, these heavily entrenched aspects of domestic violence that impact children, like what does this look like for them, are recognized as abuse in a lot of cases. It's like I've I've had people call and report and say this has been what's going on, and, and the response is, well, that's not abuse exactly. And it's... It, it, it relates, what you just said, relates to a very common question I get, which yeah. is, well, but, but is, aren't some abusers really good fathers? You know, yeah, he's bad to their mother, but he's not bad to the kids. It's like, no, that's bad to the kids. Yeah. Yeah. Being bad to their mother is so painful for mm-hmm. the kids. You're not a good father if you're abusing the children's mother. You're a terrible father if you're abusing the children's mother. It doesn't mean that everything you do as a father is terrible. Maybe mm-hmm. he's doing some other things as a father that are good, but there's hardly any terrible parents who are doing everything terrible. Mm-hmm. And the... To, to abuse your children's mother shows such lack of caring sensitivity towards your kids. It shows such severe callousness towards your kids. You're doing one of the worst things you could do to your kids, which is abuse their mom. And so in addition to what a serious problem that is in itself, what's the likelihood if he can make that serious an error? that that's the only serious error he's making as a parent. If you can that thoroughly tune out your children's feelings and needs, can completely like not care how much they suffer, 
because you have to block all that out in order to abuse their mom, well, then you're probably blocking out their suffering in some other ways, too. And that's why you know, I wrote a, a book called The Batter as Parent, because there's such huge and rampant problems in the parenting of men who abuse women. And this comes up a lot in the courts, where, where the abuser, the abuser's lawyer, and unfortunately, often court personnel will say, well, these are two separate questions. Like how he treats the mother is a completely separate question mm -hmm. from how he treats the children. No, you absolutely cannot separate those two questions. The, and, and even from a research standpoint, the research shows that the single best predictor of how a man will treat children is how he treats women. So, the no, that, so even from a research standpoint, it's totally false to, to think that somehow those are two separate questions, that you could somehow abuse women but just be this lovely dad. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I agree. I think that when we were doing the roundtable, it was really interesting when you talked about, um, you had an analogy about race and, and abuse and um, talked about how, you know, men who abuse women don't necessarily, it's not because they have a problem with women. It's because they had really bad experiences with men in their lives. I was wondering if you could talk some about that. So the, and, and, and there, and there's research that addresses this question that you're just asking about too, which mm -hmm. is, which is men's, attitudes towards women and their ways of treating women do not come very much at all from their experiences with women. This is just an interesting reality that how they think about women, how they treat women comes almost entirely from who their key male influences have been, how they, what they've learned from the men they grew up around, what they've learned from the men who are their key peers in the present day. Uh, to some extent, how they were treated by men is a factor. It's really about their experiences with males. And the analogy that I was giving this morning that you're referring to is that when we encounter a white person who's really racist towards people of color, our assumption typically, most people are going to assume that the reason that person is, is terrible towards people of color or has terrible attitudes about them is because of bad influences they had from other white people. Mm -hmm. We don't somehow assume, oh, they must have gotten that way because they got hurt by a native person or they got hurt by a black person or something, our assumption right away is they must have been around white people that taught them to be like this. Well, people uh, would best make exactly the same assumption when they're dealing with a male who's really got terrible attitudes towards females or treats females terribly. People tend to jump to thinking, oh, this somehow some bad experience with a woman must have made him turn out that way. And there's no basis for that. And it, it par parallels exactly the example I was giving from race. It's about what men he's been around, how they have shaped him, how they have influenced him, uh, how they have taught him to think and act. It's very interesting. Yeah, I think so too. And I think as you're speaking to that, it, it reminded me of something I, fear, I hear very frequently of that if you were abused, like abusers are abusers because they come from abusive households. And I think it kind of connects with what you're saying about men having a very strong impact on what men become. Um, but what are your thoughts on that? Well, and what, and what the research shows, I think, is that we're thinking almost too generally. We think, oh, we came from an abusive house, so maybe you're going you're increased likely to be an increased likelihood to be an abuser. It's actually much more specific than that. The research indicates that child abuse engenders child abuse in the next generation, and the abuse of women engenders the abuse of women in the next generation. So 
a guy who's likely to become a batterer is, or an abuser of women is not necessarily a guy who was abused himself. He's a guy who grew up around a man who abused his mother. Someone who becomes a child abuser, very likely that they were a victim of child abuse. Child abuse leads to child abuse in the next generation. Domestic violence leads to domestic violence in the next generation. There's actually not a very strong statistical link between guys who are abused themselves becoming abusers of women. Oh. It's much more whether their mother was abused. Interesting. Uh, that's how they learned that that way of treating women is okay. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What, what about men who are abusive who were not raised in a household where they witnessed domestic violence? So, and, and interestingly enough, that's a majority. Oh. oh. About, about, wow. about 40% of abusers came from a home where there was an abuser in the home. They had a male role model that treated women that way. Now, that's 40% is a lot. Mm -hmm. So the home is clearly a, a major influence. Mm -hmm. They have something like two to three times, about two, two, slightly more than twice the risk of other uh, boys of growing up to become abusers themselves. If, if they grew up around an abuser, it's, it's going to like double their risk. Mm -hmm. But what those statistics also show is that home is not the only place to learn it. Right. Because 40% is a lot. On the other hand, it still leaves 60% who did not have an, a, a, a batter or an abuser of women in the home they grew up in. So where do they learn it from? Well, the thing that is the, that's most well established in the research is they learn it from their peers, particularly during their teen years. Boys who fall in with other boys who are uh, abusing their girlfriends or who are committing sexual assaults or in other ways are just part of this whole predatory outlook on female kind of culture are at a dramatically increased risk to grow up to become abusers themselves. Uh, but we see some other really key influences. And one of the experiences that we have, those of us who work in abuser programs, is that we're calling guys out on their behavior and they're defend, trying to defend themselves. So they're coming out with their excuses or their, their justifications, I might even say, for why they think it's okay that they did what they did. And so their justifications then tell me how they learned that what they're doing is okay. So when they start saying, well, that's just the way men are, that's how my grandfather was, that's how my uncles were, that's just, we, you know, uh, of course that's how men behave, that we have a right to do this in relationships. Well, then I know, okay, he learned a lot of his behavior from his whole family tree. He had all these, these influences in his whole family tree. Another thing you'll hear from guys a fair bit, abusive guys a fair bit is, well, the women in the magazines like having sex in this way, so what's the matter with her that she doesn't want to have sex in these ways? So that teaches us that pornography is a really important influence. And I know pornography is very hotly debated, and I like to be very clear with people that my opposition to pornography is not about the fact that it's sexually explicit. My opposition to pornography is about what kind of sexuality is it mm -hmm. teaching. And the, the, the messages in, in modern-day pornography are teaching exploitation, violence, don't care about the other person's feelings. It's all use, 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 you know, exploit people, exploit people, particularly exploit women. Mm -hmm. So I know pornography is an important influence. Uh, when guys are under, abusive guys are put under pressure, they will start to quote scripture to you. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter what religion they're from. It may be Christian, it may be Muslim, it may be Jewish. I don't know, maybe the Buddhists can find something in their scriptures. I don't know. But the abusers are going to find things. So I know that they're 
their religion and their particular interpretation of their religion, their particular church's interpretation, their particular family's interpretation of the religion, is unfortunately one of the very important ways that a lot of them learn that they have the right to abuse women, and again, that they have the right to enforce. And that reminds me, actually, this is a slightly different question from what I've just been answering, but another point I like to I'll seize this opportunity to make is that people often ask me, well, how do we know if it's abuse or if it's his religious beliefs? Mm. Or how do we know if it's abuse or if just his culture, like his cultural just be, culture just believes those, those things? And the answer is enforcement. Mm -hmm. As soon as, they're enforce, as, 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 as there's enforcement, that's not religion, that's abuse. As soon as there's enforcement, that's not cultural tradition, that's abuse. Mm. So you might have a cultural tradition that the man makes the money and the woman is the primary domestic person. That's a cultural tradition. But what happens the day that she doesn't want to clean the house? Or what happens the day that she would like to work a job? Uh, or uh, then he enforces, well then as soon as he enforces, that's not cultural tradition anymore. That's abuse. Mm -hmm. Or yeah, your religion may say, oh, the man is the head of the household. But what about the day that she doesn't want him to be the head of the household? What about the day that she says, no, I'm making the decisions today? Well, as soon as he enforces, that's not religion anymore. That's abuse. Are there any, and this is me speaking from ignorance, but are there any cultures or religions that believe that it's the man's role to enforce? And then does that change? Yeah, yes. I, th I think there, there, well, first of all, religions are not a monolith. Religions have a mixed set of messages. It's something we're often reluctant to talk about. But to say, well, such and such a religion teaches such and such a thing, it's much more complex than that. And so, for example, to talk to, to, to Christians, we can find things in the Christian Bible that are, speak very favorably of a man abusing his partner, of enforcing various ways of his right to punish her. Mm -hmm. And we can find things in the Bible that say he has, does not have any such right, that that's right. completely unacceptable. Uh, so that's why I say it's the particular spin on his religion that he mm -hmm. got from his particular church, the particular way that he read scripture, the, his particular religious influences as he grew up. I'm not... The, it's not that we need to blame a, a religion. Right. It, it seems that, that it, at least the big religions all have certain things that you can seize on if, to promote abuse if that's what you're out to do. Right. That makes sense. I just, I've heard that argument as well as that like certain cultures, the man's role is to enforce. And so I, I like the way you're describing that because that's a good tool to use as I'm talking to people about this. But I also wonder what your thoughts are on that. And I would say the same thing about cultures that I say about religion. Cultures are contested. Within every culture, just as within every religion, there are debates, there are disagreements. You can say, well, such and such a culture just believes this thing. Well, are you telling me that the women in this culture all believe this? Well, actually, if you talk to the women from any given culture, you're going to hear different explanations right. of what the cultural rules are than when you're going to hear from the men. The culture is contested. And yes, I know there are a lot of women who will make excuses for women, for men to abuse women too. I'm not saying that comes only from men, but I'm saying there's tensions. There's, there's, there, there's, uh, cultures evolve and change over time. There, and so that when an abuser says, oh, well, my culture just says I get to behave this way, I would say, no, it doesn't. You're, certainly your cultural messages say that, and certainly your cultural messages say you don't. And you're ignoring the ones that are inconvenient for you and seizing on the ones that are... I've never found a culture yet that didn't include some messages that are, don't say he doesn't get to behave this way. Yeah. Right. And mainstream American culture is full of excuses and justifications for domestic violence. So I get upset mm -hmm. when people start pointing fingers at these foreign countries... Uh, whenever someone in my audience, in any, when I'm doing 
training or public speaking, anytime anybody raises their hand and says, well, aren't there some cultures where domestic violence is just considered acceptable behavior? I always answer that. Absolutely. Yours, for example. <laughs> I, I agree. <laughs> I, I'm totally with you on that. Well, and I know I'm hijacking. Can I, can I have some, can I ask another question? Sure. Okay, that's okay with you? Yes. Okay, perfect. Um, I, I think we've talked a lot on our podcast recently about um, gender when it comes to abuse and domestic violence. And I heard you speak to this at the round table and I thought it was very interesting um, because you'll notice listeners of the podcast that Lundy, when he's talking, he speaks primarily about men being the abusers and women being the survivors. And so I wanted to have you share your thoughts on that with our listeners. Well, uh, first of all, I tend to always encourage people thinking about any social problem to be constantly keeping the history of that problem in mind and the context, the current context of it in mind. So I become almost like a, I almost start to chant like a mantra, the history of the context, the history of the context, the history of the context. And we're dealing with thousands of years of history of male violence towards females as a way of keeping females down. And so, sure, there's domestic violence cases where a man is being abused by a male partner. There's domestic violence cases where a woman is being abused by a female partner. There's occasional cases of a man who's genuinely the one in fear. He's not a violent guy. He's generally in fear of a violent female. Uh, that doesn't in any way change the history and the context where we have these, just this weight of history on us where this violence has been such a key way that women's rights and personhood and voice has been taken away over and over and over again. And I think it's a mistake. We want to, well, let me, let me step back. We want to support anyone who's being badly treated in a relationship. We want, to, we want to assist anyone with urgency who's being oppressed, intimidated, sexually exploited, physically assaulted in a relationship. Uh, but when we, but we, we also want to keep remembering that we are dealing in a context where this is happening overwhelmingly to females and the perpetrators are overwhelmingly males. And that's not because women are good and men are bad. I'm not, I don't promote that notion, mm -hmm. but it's because of history and context. And uh, one way that I think of it is, well, who's going to grow up to be an abuser? The people who are going to grow up to be an abuser primarily are two people, or, or people with two experiences. One, people who grow up learning that they have a right to behave that way. And two, people who grow up discovering that they can get away with behaving that way. Well, boys are much more likely than girls, even in today's world, to get messages growing up that they have a right when they reach adulthood to boss their partner around, intimidate them, use violence against them, force them to have sex, and so forth. And boys are much more likely than girls, particularly as they start to go late into later teen years and into adulthood, to discover that they can get away with it, that they can't be stopped, that no one's willing to do anything about it, that, it, that, that you know, I'll, I'll give you an, a, a very gendered example. When a female tells her friends and relatives that she's being mistreated by her partner, she's very likely going to hear things like, what do you think is bothering him? What do you think would make it go better? Uh, do you think there are ways that you set him off? Uh, what do you think this is all about? When a man tells his friends or relatives that he's being mistreated in a relationship, what he, he, they never ask him, what do you think is going on with her? What do you think is troubling her? They always say, don't take that from her. Don't let somebody treat you that way. Don't let yourself... And so there's a very gendered cultural context yeah, right. to it. 
And then that affects what your position is in, the position is that you're in as the target of abuse. Mm -hmm. And so even if this does happen to men sometimes, a woman's experience of abuse is still going to be different. It's still going to be rooted in what it means to be a female to whom this is happening. Mm -hmm. It can't be really unpleasant for a man, sure, but it's not going to be the same thing. Her experience is going to be so shaped. And if the perpetrator's male, that's going to shape so many things. She's, what is it like to call police when the police department, even in our times, is almost entirely male? A few, a couple decades ago, it would have been literally entirely male. Now maybe there's a scattering of females in the department. What is it like as a female when you report uh, threats or uh, other kinds of abusive, scary behaviors to the police, and an overwhelmingly male department decides that they're not going to take that seriously? Well, that there's a, there, it's related there to the fact that you're female. So uh, the the. Even even where we want to make sure that we're attending to guys to whom this may also be happening, it never makes sense to, to then have that be a reason to let the gender discussion go away or to start losing our grip of what a very gendered crime this is. That and I think that's a challenge that Libby faces with presentations and doing community outreach with college boys especially is, well, women, you know, women are abusive too and women abuse men too and... Um, that's a hard. That's a hard conversation to navigate for. Absolutely, for an and and I'll be honest. I was so interested in this because, and I'm I'm rethinking this. I'm gonna have to think really critically about this because I don't know if I took the wrong step in that I got so much. It ended up being such a conversation every time I went into a classroom to present. Like, well, what about the women? What about the women? What about the male victims? Whatever. That I just started using completely gender neutral language, and now I'm like, hmm. Maybe that's not the best solution. I would love to see it not go that way. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, a great exercise that somebody taught me. And it's, this, is a good, this is exercise even more effective if you do it with the group before you get the complaints. Uh, the, you ask people in the audience, uh, how many of you in the past seven days have changed something that you would have done uh, out of concern for your personal safety. And then give them examples. You walked a different path than maybe the way you would have walked, or you made sure to be accompanied on a, something you would have done by yourself. Uh, you uh, considered what you were wearing or what you were carrying out of your personal safety. Uh, you will find that the vast majority of women raise their hand that this has happened within the past seven days and that almost no males will report. Yeah. This having happened to them in the past seven days. The men who do raise their hands typically will be men of color. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I've done this. That's why I know. I love this. And so take that one and run with it. Because yeah. when people start to say, oh, it's, it's, it's like, well, the fact that there are also some nasty women out there doesn't somehow mean, oh, because there are some, then suddenly we're way over here. It's like, mm -hmm. no, wait a minute. We're still talking about vast distinctions in how much people's lives are governed by fear. Yeah. Right, right. I... Oh, a while back, a very long while back, we got this comment on iTunes for our podcast, and it was this guy who was enraged because we did not cover the issue of men's violence enough, violence against men. Mm -hmm. And I just would hope that he's listening to you right now because uh, we tried to cover it, but not like you are. <laughs> and l let me say something about that, which is that I have known a number of men over the years who were genuine victims of a violent female. Mm -hmm. 
And their reaction to hearing presentations about domestic violence is full of compassion because they've lived it. Mm-hmm. And that's, so they'll say, oh, it's so good that you're talking about this, and I know you're talking about it mostly happened to women, but it actually this happened to me too. And they're glad that those services are out there for women. They feel bad for anyone having to go through what they went through. When you get a really enraged reaction from a guy, well, this happens to men too, that's not a victim. Mm-hmm. Because a victim wouldn't respond that way. I mean, there are other ways you find out he's not a genuine victim by knowing a whole set of other questions to ask, but you don't even have to. In a way, you don't even have to ask all those additional questions because right, if he were a genuine victim right away, he wouldn't be mad at you right. for helping right. victims. A genuine victim is thrilled that you're helping victims. Yeah, that, that was our thought, too. <laughs> yeah. It's really good. Red flag. If you're missing a few of the victims, then the genuine victim says, ooh, you might want to notice you're also missing these others. The genuine victim doesn't go, Wah! Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's very, it's very, very telling. What that style of guy is so angry about is he's so angry probably because he's got those behaviors. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily. I don't want to immediately label him, but that's probably right. why he's so angry. But what in, in any event, somehow he's really angry that you're pointing out things that he doesn't want to think about, right. about male behavior. Right. Including how men treat each other. I mean, men do a lot of harm to each other. Sure. And uh, that's something that men need to be prepared to talk about, too. Not just the harm that men do to women, and it's a and that's a very uncomfortable topic for men also to talk about how badly we hurt each other uh, in childhood and as adults, and uh, it's one of the things that men really need to change is how they treat other men. Yeah. I have a question, going back to characteristics of abusers, because what we see a lot um, is alcohol being involved, right? And you know, a, a lot of my training was always, um, you know, you should alcohol doesn't cause domestic violence because a lot of victims will say well when he's maybe if he quit drinking maybe he got sober he wouldn't abuse me and alcohol doesn't cause domestic violence it might you know it might increase a, a person's reaction to, to anger but it certainly doesn't cause domestic violence but we do see clients who say like when he's sober he's not like this it's when he's drinking he's like this so i'm curious what your thoughts are and experiences are with that well first of all my guess is that those are newer newer clients people you have not been serving as long Mm -hmm. because the longer that you've engaged people women in these discussions and they're starting to realize how much the outright violence is linked to all kinds of things that he does to her that don't involve violence Mm You know, pressuring her into having sex, tearing her down psychologically, calling her names, controlling her, just telling her what she can do and what she can't do, ignoring her needs. Abuse is this whole fabric. Sure. And uh, when a woman first starts talking about it, she often says, well, it only happens when he's drinking. She means that's the only time I've gotten badly assaulted. Right. But once she starts learning about the fact that abuse is an entire fabric... She almost always will start to say, well, yeah, a lot of that's happened sober, and a lot of that's happened sober, and a lot of that's happened sober. The absolute worst stuff has happened drunk. Sure. You're not going to find lots of cases where he's just like a respectful, when he's not drinking, supporting her independence, cares what her goals are, carrying his weight, uh, really, really rare. And so I think that's why you're hearing that is because there are people who are, you're hearing it from people who are very new to even coming to understand what has happened to them. Okay. And the and she, you know she's a, at, when she's in crisis, she's just trying to figure out how do I keep these terrifying things from happening and those seem to happen when he's drunk. And abusers or many abusers are worse when they're drunk. 
Uh, some abusers only commit their serious physical assaults while drinking. Yeah. But the verbal abuse I've never seen restricted to only when he's drinking. Mm. And tearing her down. In her, and very interesting thing that people should be aware is that, according to research, more than 50% of abused women, not way more than 50%, it's like 53 or 54% of abused women, physically abused women, say that his psychological uh, assaults are hurting her more than his physical assaults. I hear assaults. that all the time. Well, and I've seen, you know, I've, I've seen the research on that. Yeah. So even when he's violent, that doesn't mean that his violence is what's causing her the greatest harm. Yep. But when she's just trying to manage the crisis, at that moment she's focused on the violence. Mm. And at various kinds of acts of cruelty, things that are really harming her life, a few months down the road, as she goes enters into a healing process and a process of developing an analysis of what's happening, she starts to realize, and uh, he's been doing not on the alcohol. And I watch it from the other end, working with abusers. We never see significant, lasting changes from the abuser getting sober. I've had dozens, perhaps hundreds, of abusers get sober while working with them. It makes them slightly more reachable. Right. So it might lead to some change. There's no guarantee that it will. It does not lead to any significant change in itself, except for a few months while he's in early recovery, interestingly enough. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because during those early months, he doesn't have time to abuse her. His focus is on not drinking. Mm -hmm. And he has to go to his meetings, and he has to go for walks, and he has to do everything he can. And ironically and tragically, it's actually as his, re as his recovery gets more solid that he tends to then turn his attention back to controlling her. And so a lot of times in the sort of 8 to 12 month range of 6 to 12 month range maybe of sobriety, it's all starting to come back again. He's got two different problems. They're both serious problems. The alcohol problem is a serious problem and the domestic violence perpetration is a serious problem. And solving one of them is not going to solve the other. He's going to have to address them both. One more thing I need to say though is that the heavily substance abusing abuser, batterer, is a much greater risk to kill. And every study of domestic violence homicide has found a strong link to which abusers are heavily drinking, alcohol being the most frequent connection, or heavily using drugs. It's not just whether they drink or whether they use drugs, but whether they do it a lot. Yeah. If they do it a lot, the, the, in it, if he's already, we already know he's a domestic abuser, and then we know that he's a heavy substance abuser, the homicide risk jumps dramatically. So that's something friends and relatives need to know, survivors themselves need to know, police need to know. It does matter. As a danger indicator, it definitely does matter. That's interesting. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. It makes perfect sense when you describe it that way. I'm curious, um, in your experience in working with abusers, how often are abusive men rehabilitable? to not abuse anymore? Uh, I think the great majority of, of abusive men are capable of changing. Mm. Unless they've got very, very serious mental health problems, like mm -hmm. diagnosable mental health problems, which most abusers don't. Even most really crazy-seeming abusers, when you try to diagnose them, they don't actually uh, prove to have any, any at all clearly definable mental health problem. They're just that they're behaving that extremely because of how abusive they are. And... So apart from the severely mentally ill batterer, abusers are perfectly capable of changing. They mm -hmm. don't change. They rarely do, but it's not because they couldn't. Okay, so it's, it's not because, because they they're not willing to do the work. Okay. For an abuser to change, 
apologies do nothing, promises to change do nothing. I was talking about that with your group this morning. Mm -hmm. The only thing that matters is him settling in to, to two to three years and probably more, but two to three years of really hard work on himself, during which he completely gives up all blaming of her. That's like completely off the table. He can no longer blame her at all for any of his own behaviors. He has to accept that he's 100% responsible for his own behaviors. He has to stop denying any of what he's done. In other words, he can't admit 10% or 20% or even 30%. He's got to like admit the whole range of what he's done to her. Violence, sexual mistreatment of her, verbal abuse, the whole bit. And then he's got to do, be working on himself every day. It's In, in that sense, it's like trying to get off, off a substance abuse problem. It's not, abuse perpetration is not the same thing as an addiction, like he can't go into a program for addiction and have it help him, but it does have that element in common, that you have to work hard on it every day for years mm -hmm. to make a real turnaround. How many abusers are willing to do that? Very, very few. They're too selfish to do the work. And his, the problem is his selfishness. It's not that he can't change. He's, he's too selfish to do the work. At, le at least with respect to, his, to women, he's too selfish. He may be Mr. Generous around town. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of abusers are Mr. Generous around town. But they're so selfish when it comes to their intimate relationships. So you see few people willing to do the work? I've seen very few abusers willing to even stay in an abuser program for longer than just a few months. Well, he's not going to do anything if he's staying in an abuser program for just a few months. He's going to have to be in there at least a year and a half, and my, both my experience and some indicators from the research, he's going to have to be in there in the two to three year range. And he, he's whining about it the whole time. Oh, I have to keep going to these meetings. It's like, you're not going to change if you're whining about the fact that you have to mm -hmm. keep going to these meetings. You talk to an alcoholic who's serious about their recovery, they're saying, I'm so lucky I have these great meetings to go to. Mm -hmm. yeah. They're not saying, oh, I have to go to these stupid meetings. If they say I have to go to these stupid meetings, you know they're going to keep right on drinking. Yeah, no, that's true. And uh, the abusers, the abusers, same way, complaining, oh, I have to pay 40 bucks every week to go to my abuser group. Oh, I have to, you know, it's like he's not getting anywhere. He's not getting anywhere. He's going to have to settle down and do the work. And some abusers do settle down and do the work. But what, what I always say to, to women and to friends, relatives, people who are, who are trying to figure out is he capable of changing, is just like, well, look and see if he's doing the work. Yeah. But if he's still blaming her, he's not doing the work. If he's still, or if he's still blaming everything, oh, his, uh, he's blaming alcohol, he's blaming stress, everything other. If he hasn't even acknowledged that the problem is his values and attitudes, his problem is that he's got an abuse problem, he's not going to change. He's still denying the lion's share of what he did, he's not going to change. He's not doing the work. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, if any of this interested you at all, which I'm positive it did, because I got goosebumps, you definitely, definitely should check out Lundy's books. He is a straight up genius. No joke. I'm not joking at all. Please buy his books. And if not, email me and I will figure out a way to get you his books because they are that good. And they, they really, they really help people. They really do. You're very kind. And if I could make a quick plug, I've just come out with my first book that's not directly abuse related. It's a book that's actually for both men and women that's just about emotional healing in general from everything, mm. from whatever ails you in life. And it's called The Joyous Recovery, uh, A New Approach to Emotional Healing and Wellness. Oh, yes, ordering it today. Yeah, we should we'll order some for the office. <laughs> yes, for sure. absolutely. Well, if you, for any reason, need an advocate for domestic violence, sexual assault, and we could help you, please give us a call, whether you're in Wyoming, Laramie, or not. We can help you get connected with where you need to be, and Farron will tell you our hotline number because that's her job. 307-745-3556.
Perfect. Yep. At the beginning, I didn't have our hotline number memorized, but then we got into this habit of now Farron always says it, and so now it's just her job to say yep, our hotline number. That's my job. Number. That's why I'm here. That's why Farron's here, yes. I have never once talked to a woman who regretted having made the call. Yeah. That I have heard many women say making that first call was so hard, was such a leap, but I've never heard anyone say, I wish I hadn't done it. So make that call. Wow. Listen yeah. to Lundy, because he's always right. <laughs> <laughs> Bye.